This is a Federal News Network podcast. Whether in the public or private sectors, technology has arrived at the task of recruiting and hiring people. Now more employers are adding artificial intelligence to their technology stacks. AI has the potential for misuse or even for introducing unlawful bias all by itself. It's a big concern for my next guest. She's chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Charlotte Burroughs. Ms. Burroughs, good to have you on. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here, Tom. And the EEOC has launched a specific initiative really to get at the uh, different aspects of the AI issue. Tell us about that initiative. Absolutely. The EEOC is going to be taking really a closer look at how technology is fundamentally changing the way that employment decisions are made. Our interest is really in all forms of tech-based employment decision-making, including, but certainly not limited to the use of artificial intelligence or AI. This new initiative will build on our past work in the area and take a close look so that we can help support and guide applicants, employees, employers, and technology vendors in ensuring that these new technologies are used fairly, meaning consistently with our federal equal employment opportunity laws. And that will really allow employers and employees to benefit from these new technologies while ensuring that they don't inadvertently become a high tech pathway to discrimination. Early on in the internet and online era, a lot of employers introduced machine reading types of things for large numbers of resumes that would come in. And it's easy to see how the keywords you use and so forth can, as you say, amplify the uh, discrimination that might be occurring or even introducing it if they have you know, lower motives, you might say. Is your sense that artificial intelligence takes this to a new and more complex level, perhaps? Well, it is certainly the case that this has been sort of rapidly accelerating and that on the one hand is extremely exciting, but we have to be sure that those civil rights laws that have long protected employees on the job continue to be protected even as the way hiring is done in this country evolves. So we've had, just to make it very concrete, at least one instance that was widely reported in which a tech company tried to create an algorithm to screen potential candidates for software developers, but had to actually abandon that effort after finding that it was systematically downgrading qualified applicants. And so what happened was really a situation where they had taken about a decade's worth of successful applicants' resumes and basically trained the computer to find similar kinds of resumes. But what was happening, because most of those successful applicants had been men, was that if you had the word women's in your uh, resume, so for instance, if you said, hey, I was the captain of the women's basketball team, that would get you downgraded. Or if you had, in this instance, a couple of women's colleges on your resume, that would also get you downgraded because the mostly male previous applicants had not had those characteristics. So it can creep in in ways that are deeply disturbing, and I think most employers would not want. And that's what we're really trying to both raise awareness about and figure out how to assist in ensuring that that doesn't happen. And you will be launching a series of listening sessions with key stakeholders and talking about some of the tools they're using. Who do you plan to be speaking with? A range of employers, large and small. And also, will you be talking to federal hiring practitioners that might be using these types of tools? 
Absolutely. That's exactly right. I think just to put this in context, we've got about 83% of employers in this country using some form of AI in their hiring. And so we really are going to be talking to employers and also vendors, but really just key experts. So some of the folks who are actually designing these so that we understand how they're being used, because as I mentioned in the beginning, this is a rapidly evolving area. And we are also going to be working with other key federal agencies, including OFCCP and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy on all of these issues. Yeah, OFCCP is the one that oversees federal contractors, and they've got some mandates of their own on this front then. That's absolutely right. They're a key partner, and they have similar authorities with respect to enforcing anti-discrimination protections as the EEOC does, but they look only at those large employers typically, but those employers that are federal contractors, and that's their authority. So it's a nice compliment, and we work frequently with them on a number of different priorities. We're speaking with Charlotte Burroughs. She is chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And are there any good stories that you know of? The well-known horror stories you know, are well-known because they're horror stories, but do you have any sense of people that have been maybe using AI to eliminate the bias that might have been in their regular hiring systems? Well, that is certainly the goal, and it's a goal that we applaud. I don't know that I can identify one particular product, and I'm not sure it would be appropriate for me to sort of advertise that in any event, but that is absolutely one of the reasons why employers are looking at this. There's the hope that having an automated hiring process can help in some instances to eliminate human bias. And so that is, if you will, the holy grail in some of these practices. And what we think is important is that the EEOC help vendors and others understand what our laws require and the ways in which bias can creep in so that we can assist as they look for that. So I think there's that potential. I don't know for certain that that has been fully realized, but I am hopeful that it could be. And as you reach out to industry, are you also looking to build up the technical chops of the EEOC staff itself with respect to some of these tools? That's right. And also working again with those that have that expertise in the government already. And part of these listening sessions will help us understand really, truly where we need to build that expertise. And when you mentioned the case of this employer that kept having this bias toward white men in hiring because that's what they had hired before, that gets to the issue of the data used to train algorithms. It seems like a big clue to a lot of these questions about AI in whatever domain is the data that you train your algorithms with. And it seems like that's a good place to focus. That's right. And that is really a key part of this. I would say that there are also other issues that are particularly important for employers to be thinking about. One of them is that we have, if you will, sort of gamified assessments out there. So it's basically you take a job test that is something like, you know, almost like playing a video game. And in some instances, those may require a certain level of dexterity. If there's like, say, a keyboard or a mouse or some other sort of manual input device, And in those instances, it's really important for employers who want to use those kinds of tests to be thinking about whether or not they actually need to offer some accommodation. So if you had an applicant, for instance, that really needed assistance because of limited dexterity, they might be experts in whatever it is the job was, but just had a little trouble or needed extra time to use 
whatever manual input device, the trackpad, et cetera, it really is important that employers make those accessibility decisions and offer those accommodations so that applicants have the opportunity to assert that that's necessary. And those are things that are fairly easy for the applicant to know about. There may be other things that are embedded that the applicant doesn't know are part of the assessment. And so that's why I think it's important for us to be particularly vigilant as the federal government in helping as well. Yes, and speaking of embedded information that can work for or against a person, I heard a case recently of an agency that was trying to make sure there was no bias in its grant program, and it learned that it doesn't ask racial information on grant applications. I said, so how can you tell? And the answer was, well, we did a name search across the applicant pool. And that seems to imply that certain names are associated with certain types of people. Is that reality or bias or what happens in a case like that? In certain instances, that's true. There are certain names that perhaps will be, for instance, for immigrants or for persons from particular ethnic groups. Obviously, it's not, you know, sort of Spanish surnames. Sometimes you absolutely can tell, but not with complete accuracy under any circumstances. So uh, without knowing more, I don't know that I can comment in any detail about that. But What is important to understand is that these kinds of searches, if you will, inadvertently can end up excluding, for instance, if you had, again, trained your AI tool on, you know, past applicants who did not have anyone with a Latino or Spanish language surname, then you might actually inadvertently end up excluding people who had such surnames in it. So there are certain names. I don't, it's certainly not a perfect match. Sure. There's certain names that are associated rather, but not a perfect match. Is there a timeline on it? Does it have an end date? Do you have deliverables that you're planning on? Or is this going to be something you think might be just a continuous process? Well, it's definitely going to be a multi-year effort. This is a very important and, uh, if you will, sophisticated area of the law. So we're looking at doing that Thoughtfully, and a couple of our goals really as we think about it is to really increase transparency around this and to encourage employers to be really looking, if you will, under the hood when they seek to purchase these products. Most employers don't develop them themselves and to make sure that they're actually valid for the purposes that they are looking into them for. So we're going to be launching this series of listening sessions with key stakeholders and looking towards gathering information and identifying promising practices. And I think that's really where we can be most helpful as this area develops and to sort of give some bright line guidelines uh, based on the conversations and the research that we will do and our expertise in the civil rights laws to really sort of assist in that area as the technology develops. I think it's sort of the sweet spot of where we can contribute. And while we have you, you have been recently, just a few months ago, I guess, well, beginning of the year now, it seems like a million years ago, reconfirmed now, and you'll be at the EEOC for a few more years. Any other big initiatives you want to talk about while we've got the chance? Oh, thank you for that question. So we have a lot of issues on our plate always, as I'm sure you're not surprised to hear. And a couple of things that have been different uh, about this past year and certainly the year since I became, or almost a year, I guess, not quite, uh, since I became chair, is that we are looking to really assist in the area and, and respond to this big overarching issue 
of what has happened in the aftermath and the ongoing circumstances of this pandemic. So it turns out that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has been not just a public health crisis and a crisis with respect to some economic issues, but it's truly been a civil rights crisis because it has hit so heavily on people of color, on women, certainly women with children, persons with disabilities, to some extent the LGBTQI uh, population. And so what we need to do is really be laser focused on ensuring that as we come out of you know, this pandemic economy, we are including everyone. So that has been an overarching thread. We had a, a tremendous hearing back in April to really focus on those issues in a broad way and are continuing to do that, as well as to push out really detailed information about how to deal with the civil rights implications of the pandemic, including things like accommodations for persons with disabilities, and accommodations for persons who have religious objections in some instances to save COVID-19 vaccines or the kinds of things that just that the employers need to be aware of as they wrestle with what's really been a, a pretty big challenge for employers throughout the period of the pandemic and will continue to be, I think, as particularly as some of those remote workers uh, return just going to say that you make sure. a good point there. I spoke to a gentleman just the other evening who is African-American and employed and has had the COVID in a pretty severe way. And coming out of it, he is fine now. He's totally mentally there, always was. But there are some lingering physical issues that could almost render him not disabled, but needing accommodation. That's the kind of thing, I guess, that you're looking at to make sure employers are open to accommodating and, in fact, accommodate? That's right. And so there are a host of issues, but this is also one that we want to be really educating about because COVID-19 itself or the effects of it can, even if it's not that way in the beginning, in certain circumstances, and I want to be careful about that because it's not always the case, but in certain circumstances, COVID-19 itself can be a disability. And that's something that we're looking to providing additional information about in the near future. Our partners at the Department of Justice and Health and Human Services have also spoken to that issue. And we really want to help with respect to the employment context, employers to understand this and to, you know, support employers like the one that you just mentioned as they recover and so that they can fully work and, and really contribute all of their talents in this area. The other thing I would say is that retaliation, including unfortunately in the federal government, has proven to be a huge issue. And so we joined with the NLRB and with the Department of Labor recently on a broad initiative to educate, first of all, the employer community, but also civil rights groups and employees about how to tackle that. We take retaliation so seriously because it's really, if you think about it, the linchpin that runs through all of our other initiatives. And if you don't have the ability to, you know, report discrimination without fearing retaliation, then that right to be free of discrimination really only exists on paper. So that's a top issue for us as well, Tom. Sounds like a full plate. Absolutely, always. And we are really enjoying it. So delighted to have this opportunity to talk about our work. Charlotte Burroughs is chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you.
We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. 
but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, 
is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.